0: This is Diet of Brussels. How does the uh, Danish uh, opt-out system work? This is a, a very particular case, uh, and as you'll have noticed uh, over the episodes, we seem to have a lot of particular cases. But the reason we want to talk about Denmark uh, today is that it's something which has floated back into uh, the debate... Uh, particularly uh, with Cameron's insistence on some kind of legally binding uh, formulation of uh, uh, the exemption from the commitments to uh, ever-closer union, as he sees it. And uh, in that context, uh, the Danish experience back in the uh, early 1990s, uh, at the time of Maastricht, is uh, perhaps uh, instructive uh, and informative. Um, At the time of Maastricht, uh, the Danes were prepared to uh, be part of the treaty, Uh, they had signed up to everything. But when it came to uh, ratification, they were required uh, uh, to hold a popular referendum, uh, which they did, uh, which they promptly lost in June of ninety-two. Now that produced something of a uh, crisis, not least because it was followed almost immediately by the French with their uh, petit oui, uh, where a, a very small majority approved the treaty. There was real concern at the time that uh, all of that ambition that Maastricht uh, had uh, contained uh, really hadn't uh, kept pace with uh, popular Interests. Because this was the very first time that uh, a country had uh, voted against uh, accepting a treaty amendment, there was real uh, effort and interest put into trying to find a solution. Now, the solution that was found uh, in the space of six months, guided very strongly by the then presidency of uh, the EEC, uh, which was uh, in fact the British government, was uh, something that's become known as the uh, Edinburgh Agreement, or the Edinburgh Accords, which were signed in December of that same year. In essence, what those uh, Accords uh, said was that uh, Denmark would have some clarifications of its position on a number of different areas, most obviously and importantly uh, a, a commitment that it wouldn't be forced to join a single currency. That was then uh, signed by all the member states. Uh, It was uh, then deposited as an international treaty. And the Danes then had a legally binding commitment between all of the member states of the EU uh, with something that wasn't actually part of the EU. Now... uh, that process uh, really was a way of short-circuiting trying to get uh, any further amendment. And if you can recall the uh, Maastricht uh, ratification, that took a very long time indeed because of all of the problems of ratification. So to try and get a, a further amendment of the treaty wasn't really possible or viable at the time. So there is scope for doing things outside of the EU framework in the legal sense, um, There is uh, more recently the uh, fiscal compact uh, that was agreed uh, without the UK's participation, uh, which was done outside of the EU uh, because uh, the UK wasn't prepared to accept the use of uh, the EU uh, framework for doing that, even though the other member states said that they could use uh, EU institutions. So uh, there are ways and means around... uh, this kind of uh, approach. The question really is whether the Danish uh, model is one that is uh, reproducible. There was a very particular set of circumstances in 92. Denmark looked like a uh, one-off case. It was uh, uh, something that had no precedent. There was a a real concern not to uh, derail the process of ratification. The UK stands at a very different pace. Uh, Its ability to uh, marshal support uh, is uh, perhaps less strong than that of Denmark. And potentially the issue is one which uh, several member states may feel that they've already dealt with, not least in a declaration of the European Council uh, last year, that uh, ever-close union was not something that was an obligation uh, to, to, to member states. Still, it's something that we will come back to and we'll hear more about, and it's worth reflecting on the costs and the benefits of that type of approach.